0: The topic of preservation reaches far beyond just buildings and archives. It's about culture, place, and remembrance. We thought we'd take a deep dive and see how it applies to the world of Star Wars.
1: Welcome to Sky Talkers. Here are your hosts. Charlotte and Caitlin. Hello and welcome to Sky Talkers. I'm your host, Charlotte. Hey guys, I'm your other host,
0: Caitlin, and welcome to our Sky Talkers episode where we're gonna be diving a little bit into my realm of things, kind of with preservation and history. But Charlotte also has a very deep background in these things too. So I'm really excited for this episode. We've been talking about this for a while, actually. It's gonna be good.
1: Um we have a lot of like I, don't, I was scrolling through this before, and I was like, wow, this is going to get extremely nerdy. So- yeah. yeah. <laughs> so everyone get ready. It's going to get weird. It's,
0: it's not going to get weird. This is what happens in our real world.
1: <laughs> okay, it's going to get extremely geeky.
0: It's going to get, like, very in- Well, I don't want to say very in-depth. I'll try not to go too in-depth. Basically, if you guys don't know, I am currently getting my Master's in Historic Preservation. And so we're going to be talking a little bit about what that actually is, how it applies to the world of Star Wars. Um, We're also going to be talking a lot about art history, which I got my undergrad degree in art history. Charlotte has a really um, deep background in art history and actually doing art (laughs) too. Um, So this is like the merging of all our worlds in this episode. (laughs)
1: Yeah, if only we could throw in English literature somewhere. I know, <laughs> in here. right? I'm right. Um, I don't know how. Maybe I'm sure – I mean, there are books archives. Yeah, there are books in
0: archives. Up. We're going to be talking about archives, so there are books there. Uh, it'll work
1: its way in. Anyway, so we forgot to mention this, but we're coming to Dragon Con in a couple weeks. Um, I just wanted to drop that in there. If you guys are going, if you know anyone who's going, Caitlin and I will be on the Speculating Episode 9 panel, which is on Saturday at 7pm in the Star Wars track room. As for right now, it might move. Um, But we're really excited. We're a little nervous. um, But we're we're excited to, if you guys are there, please come up and say hi. We want to meet you. We want to know you. So Mm -hmm. yeah.
0: Yeah, definitely a little nervous. Um, We were on a panel last year at DragonCon, but um, and it went well. It was a lot of fun, but I feel like we're still nervous this time around too. (laughs) Not much has changed. Yeah, it's gonna be fun. I'm I'm looking forward to it. DragonCon is such an adventure every year. It's different every year. So if you've never been and are thinking about going, um, highly highly recommend it. I think they're estimating like eighty five thousand people this year or something ridiculous. Um, And we would love to see (laughs) as many many friends as we could. Um, (laughs) But we also just wanted to say a very big thank you to all of the positive feedback we got for our Ahsoka episode and our By George series. It was those – I think those are probably going to be up there with some of our favorite episodes of the show so far. Um, We had such a good time making them and um, hearing everyone's thoughts, and especially all the listener emails we got for our soak episode. It was just, it was incredible. It was a really great summer for Sky (laughs) Talkers.
1: Yes, I mean it's funny that you talk about summer in the past tense. I know you're back in school now, because, but like I'm like no, summer's not over. It's not going to be over for like two months. (laughs) It's not happening. (laughs) I'd I'm still... like, I would
0: like summer to be over immediately.
1: Just because you have like the terrible, like, humidity, extreme heat. I don't want summer to be over just yet. I'm not ready.
0: It makes me so sad. When I left, so I was up in upstate New York this summer. And uh, when I left there, it was 72 degrees and like. humidity, if that, sunny, a beautiful wind coming off the river, just amazing. And uh, I got here back in Georgia, and it was 90 degrees at 7 o'clock at night with 90% humidity, and I was like,
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's (laughs) why
0: I leave. (laughs) Yeah, I did, but I had to come back, unfortunately. It's very sad. um, It's very sad. Yeah, I'm excited to be back home with my family and friends, but uh, I definitely – I'm not a summer person. Listen, guys, I'm just – I'm not my best self when I'm hot, so (laughs) I don't love summer. Okay, so let's start – let's get into our parts. So in part one, we're going to be talking about one of my favorite Star Wars topics, which is the Lost 20 and this idea or theme of remembrance. In part two, we're going to be talking about Sabine and Thrawn. And then in part three, we're going to be talking about what preservation looks like in the real world as
1: it relates to Star Wars. So without further ado, let's get started. Uh,
0: He has a very powerful face, doesn't he? He was one of the most brilliant
1: Jedi I've had the privilege of knowing. I never understood why he quit. Well, one might say he was always a bit out of step with the decisions of the Council. Much like your old master, Qui-Kon Jinn. Really? Oh, yes. They were very individual thinkers. Idealists.
0: All right. Welcome to part one where we are going to be talking about the Lost 20 and this idea of remembrance and what it means in the Star Wars world and then also a little bit about what it means in the real world, too. So I feel like I've touched on the Lost 20 in a lot of different episodes because they just continue to confound me, (laughs) and (laughs) I find them really interesting. So the Lost 20 is a series of busts in the Jedi Temple archives on Coruscant that represents um, all of the Jedi who have left the Jedi Order for a myriad of reasons. I don't think it's ever really
1: specifically said why each person I don't even know everyone who's in the last lost twenty I, th- I think we don't know if I remember correctly. Yeah. Like it hasn't been defined. The only person that is canon part of the Lost 20 is Dooku.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I know that I've thought a lot about the Lost 20, but what what were your first
1: thoughts about the Lost 20, if any? Okay, so here's the thing. The Lost 20 20- that whole sequence with Jocasta Nu is cut out of Attack the Clones. Mm -hmm. It's hardly a thing. It's not really a thing. Like, it, I mean, it is a thing. It's just like, I I just want to recognize the fact that it's not actually in the film. Um, It is, like, in the ambiance of the film because you see Obi-Wan in the library looking for answers, but it's not addressed. But it is addressed in the deleted scenes. Mm -hmm. Um, I always thought it was really interesting because I liked this idea of, like, a librarian. I think Jocasta Nu is really cool. Um, Mm -hmm. especially her character has been like, um, expanded in, I think the Darth Vader comics and she's like extremely cool and has, you know, wields a lightsaber and everything. Um, but I liked this idea of the Jedi having a huge library. Um, but in terms of the last 20 and like the bus, I was like, oh, that's weird. That's a good segue for them to start talking about Dooku and how he left the order. But I (laughs) that's weird. (laughs) But I wasn't like, oh my God, I'm gonna spend my next, you know, fifteen years thinking about them like you have. Like me.
0: (laughs) It's fine. What's funny is I feel like I was really interested in the last 20 even before I got into my field that I'm in now, which I guess is like a good sign that I've always been interested in like public history and things like that. But mm-hmm. um, the Blast Points actually did a really hilarious episode about Lost, the Lost Twenty, and Count Dooku. So you guys should definitely go check that out if you haven't. Um, but I, I. Th- I think this the the whole concept of the Lost 20 is fascinating to me because I I want to know the process of like who decides what constitutes someone as like a member of that society like is it cut off at 20 like are there only ever 20 busts like who who makes these busts is there like a Lost 20 sculptor somewhere deep in the Jedi temple did they add one for Ahsoka is it only Jedi masters can Jedi padawans be included in it I think it's (laughs) so interesting. Um, And one time I asked Pablo Hidalgo about it, and he said that it was about a lesson. And at first, I remember thinking, oh, okay, I get that. Perfect. But now I'm not so sure. I mean, I think I understand what the lesson is. And the more I've kind of thought about it in the context of this or this podcast episode in particular, it kind of all goes back to this greater tragedy of the Jedi and kind of everything that was going on in this time period. And especially when you're looking at Count Dooku, it's like, well, once they found out that he was a Sith Lord, did they like take out his bust? Or they were like, it's just another layer to the lesson, Jedi
1: Padawans. <laughs> I think they did. Um, I think that not take out. I think that they kept it, and they were like, "It's just another layer to his story." You know, mm-hmm. I, I, I need to amend my answer about what I thought about the Lost Twenty. I was just thinking about the Revenge of the Sith novelization. I laugh every time I say it because I just bring it up all the time. But <laughs> I do have think it
0: in a while though. But go I know, on. I know. I
1: do think that there's a part in that where Anakin like ruminates on the Lost Twenty and mm-hmm. um, Dooku. And I think I remember thinking, oh my God, Anakin's gonna be the lost 21, you know?
0: Yeah. Um
1: and I think it's really interesting in the context of Ahsoka, like like you said, like is Ahsoka the 21st? Um, what does that look like now? Like you 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 asked, like what's the process of that? And um I think that's kind of bizarre. It's it's really, it's it is really strange. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's really bizarre. And on the one hand, it's like it's I think the lesson that kind of Pablo Hidalgo was talking about or or referring to is that it's good that the Jedi have this in place to uh, be able to talk about the things that maybe went wrong or um, how there are good people who were trained as Jedi but then didn't remain Jedi. Mm -hmm. And let's talk about who these people were and why they made decisions that they made. Um, I know that when I look at it in the context of Count Dooku, I was like, I think that that concept is great. Like, let's learn about the negative parts of Jedi history. That's important to do. But is a is a bust – like, a bust is something that you do in, like, celebration of someone, like a, a, a memorial. And I always think I'm like, okay, is a bust – like, is that sending the right message? Like, why are we memorializing people and their likeness? Who decided to leave the Jedi Order rather than doing like a nice PowerPoint presentation or like a book, <laughs> a sacred
1: Jedi text, the sacred um, Jedi
0: text, <laughs> the anti-Jedi or, text, like, a stained glass window? Yes, uh, <laughs> but these even are. The- these are like like a bust is something and and it's and granted we don't know what these busts were made out of but you know when you think about these things in like in our world like a bust is something that is highly skilled labor mm-hmm. you have to have an artisan a craftsman to go out and make that and I'm like Oh my god! The Jedi are spending money on <laughs> spending credits on a bust of someone who decided they didn't like them anymore. Um, is that the best use of their funding? <laughs>
1: like, are they a nonprofit?
0: <laughs> like, what's the deal? They, here?
1: they literally carve the statues from their lightsabers. Oh my like, god! It's their chisel. <laughs> it's
0: I wonder if they're like. <laughs> it, ha- it would have to be like Yoda's lightsaber, like much smaller, because they're they're kind they're just a the bust. It's not like a full body statue. um
1: I don't know I I do think it's an interesting choice Um, I think just design wise I think it was an interesting thing that Obi-Wan could like reference um, Mm -hmm. and it's tangible Um, but it like in 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 universe, I think that they are huge and almost reminders of it. what's what's weird about it is that in a way they're memorializing and they're honoring the people that have left. Like at the basis, right? Yeah, um, exactly. Rather than kind of do you should never brush anything under the rug, but it's really interesting that like at the core of this they want to remember this when at this point in the Jedi kind of the way the Jedi are, it's really interesting because I would have thought that the Jedi would be like, don't even think about that, like focus on the now, why, mm-hmm. why, why? you know, spend any time thinking about the past when you could just like look forward, you know, mm-hmm. um, and you know, what's in front of your nose, why ruminate on that? So I think that's where I get a little tripped up about it is it seems so uncurrent, like <laughs> Attack of the Clones Jedi Order to me, yeah, you know, yeah,
0: exactly. I think you brought up a really interesting point about it being something tangible, and in the the world of the movie, I think that's probably a really big reason why they were created as busts is because it is something that's, like, tangible and, like, a physical item as Mm -hmm. opposed to, like, a data pad in their archives or shelves. You know, that's not something that is visually as appealing, whereas to have this, like, kind of forlorn bust of Count Dooku, it really is, like, something that a character can actually point to and say something about. And it's giving you a little bit of, you know, like, a face with a name and reminding the audience that this character existed within the realm of the Jedi Temple and now does not
1: Yeah, it's like Ozymandias. Um, Yeah, there's my English major coming in. (laughs) Wow, you didn't even have a great Shelley poem about (laughs) the lasting impact of statues or lack thereof.
0: Yeah, that's so funny. In part one, too, you didn't even have to wait that long. I um I think kind of segueing into a little bit uh, in relation to the real world, I found myself thinking even more about the Lost 20 um, in the past year or so within my program um, because obviously there's been a lot of talk about Confederate monuments um, throughout the country and not just Confederate monuments, but any kind of monument or statue or memorial, um, especially from... Any kind of historic past, um, a monument is telling you a very specific story. Um, It's not always the complete story. It's not even always the true story. Um, It's 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 a statement. And uh, so I was thinking about these Confederate monuments, and I had a whole class where I was writing a paper on these. So that's if you're kind of if you're wondering why I'm like bringing this up, this is why I spent a lot of time thinking about these things. (laughs) And. we, we talk a lot about Confederate monuments, especially down here where we – in the South where we tend to have more of them. And uh, I'm not here to make any kind of like controversial statement about them. I'm just kind of wanting to lay out a little bit of how I was thinking about things. And what you have to know about preservation and historic preservation is that, you know, most people think that historic preservation is about telling you what color you can or can't paint your house. And that's like pretty much all the field does when that's not really the case at all. Um, Preservation not only deals with an individual building or an individual set of buildings, but it deals a lot with the cultural landscape of a place. And what we mean by cultural landscape is it's, you know, be it a town or a city or, or whatever the district is, um... We're talking about the buildings, the streetscapes, the history, the monuments, the trees, the foliage, everything that's, you know, within this city, how it all comes together to create the identity and the feeling of a place. And for a lot of places, for most places, actually, their monuments and kind of their landmarks become a part of the cultural landscape. And so when you talk about removing a piece of the cultural landscape, whether it's demolishing a building, changing the way a road works, or removing a monument, you're physically altering the way that people have interacted with their environment. And this gets brought up a lot when we're talking about the removal of any kind of monument. And when I was thinking about Confederate monuments, I was reading a lot of these arguments from both sides, people who were like, remove every single monument, and people who were like... No, don't mess with it, you know? And what a lot of people who didn't want those monuments removed were saying was that they represent a negative part of our history, and in that vein, we need to keep them up in order for us to, you know, to put it, you know, simplify it to not repeat the mistakes of our past. And I was like, oh, that that's not exactly the same, but it, it does kind of remind me of what the, the purpose of The last 20 was. It was to talk about, you know, the not-so-shiny part of the Jedi past and discuss what led people like Count Dooku to actually leaving the Jedi Order. Now, I, I that's a very loose comparison again. And again, it's just me conflating my studies with the Star Wars world. But I thought it was really interesting um, because, you know, we... We like to talk about these monuments in, you know, about how they're educating the public, both in the Star Wars world and in our world. But, you know, the question I come back to a lot in my studies is, like, are monuments the best way to educate people? And this is what I was saying earlier with The Last 20. It's like – Would it have been better as a book or like a lecture for all the Padawans (laughs) to learn about the last 20? Just like in our real world, is a monument the best way to teach someone about either a really great part of our history or a really bad part of our history?
1: I have a question for you. Yes. Okay. So I'm going to put you in this scenario. Okay. I am Jedi Master Charlotte (laughs) Airdy. One of the the very few female Jedi on the, on the Jedi (laughs) council. It's fine. (laughs) I was immediately made a master and then I was put on the Jedi council. Like I'm really cool. Anyway. Yeah, essentially. Um, But I'm like, you know what? Let's renovate the Jedi archival library. Let's get rid of it. Let's make a bigger one. We have way more history. Let's remove the last 20 monuments. Um, what would you say as Jedi Padawan, Galen Flusher?
0: Wait, wait, wait. You're a master, but I'm just a Padawan. Can't that be like the Jakatsu new in this situation? <laughs> wait, also wait. You, the master, are coming to me, the Padawans, be like, what's your opinion on this Padawan Flusher?
1: Yeah, I am. You know, sometimes you got to learn from your youth, you know, truly wonderful the mind of a child is. (laughs) Wow, you're just
0: coming at it with the quotes today. Um, Yeah, I think this is a good question. I think that, you know, the difference between what is kind of happening in our real world as far as controversial monuments, be them Confederate or otherwise – um, is that those are out in the public. They're out in the open where people are interacting with them, walking by them, having a reaction to them in their everyday life. They're confronted with them in their everyday life. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe that confrontation is obvious. Maybe people don't pay it a second glance. It depends on where you are and who you are. Whereas with the Jedi archives, the thing that I think kind of sets it apart is that it is in an archive. That is a place – It's created as a place of learning and as a place of remembrance. Um, That's like it's – one of its biggest purposes as an archive is a place to remember and learn. And while people use the physical landscape in the real world, like a city or a downtown district, um, to kind of act as a place of remembrance, that's that's a small part of a city landscape. You know what I mean? So Mm I – I don't think it would necessarily be a bad thing to remove those the the lost twenty from within the Jedi archives, um, if there was another way to ensure that that knowledge was still there, right? Um, or maybe they're maybe they're moving them to a place that's not as centralized within the Jedi archives, um, or maybe they're becoming like a portrait that's on a wall in the back, or you know somewhere else, something that's not um, as centralized or as um, glorified. Is not the right word,
1: but you know, as um, memorialized. I don't really know. I was just thinking, okay, so say it was actually the Lost 21 with the addition of the Clone Wars. And um, someone was like, we need to remove Ahsoka's bust. Um, I just don't think we need to remember that part of Jedi history. Like the Jedi looked so foolish then, blaming mm-hmm. Ahsoka for something she didn't do. And we recognized how foolish we are me as like a jedi historian now i'm a historian not a master and I'm still i a Padawan? <laughs> i would be like well no like you have to understand the flaws of the jedi it's part of how you move forward um you can't forget the past you have to we can't let the past die you have to take <laughs> the past and move forward with it and um removing or you know not remembering any sort of aspect of ahsoka leaving the order or dooku leaving the order would you know kind of present the jedi in like an ignorant light um they wouldn't i I don't know i feel like there's like a great reverence that goes with understanding that part of your past
0: yeah, exactly. And that's the question. It's like, would the Jedi, if, if the events for Avenger the Sith hadn't happened, would the Jedi Order have actually created a bust about Ahsoka, uh, which, you know, that bust exists because of their mistake, a really big mistake. You know, maybe with Dooku and, you know, the other 19, it, it was some combination of like them just growing apart from the Jedi Order, you know what I mean? And like, you know, having a new philosophy on life. But with Ahsoka, it was all their fault. Yeah, it um, was a
1: huge mistake by them, and yeah. I mean Yoda says it at the end there, but i mm-hmm. I think um, I think that they would do themselves a disservice by not incorporating that into the lessons of the Jedi, especially like something that you would come to learn as you got older in the Jedi Temple. Yeah, um, I, that would be a hard lesson to learn. It really I, would.
0: You know? I think given the the state of the Jedi where we leave them at the end of Clone Wars, um, I don't think they would have done that because they clearly, like, they invite Ahsoka into the, the council chambers and are very, like, apologetic. And you can almost see a situation where, say, she had accepted and Mace Windu was like, all right, great, and we're never going to talk about this again. Like it doesn't do well to, you know, freak the, you know, given given the state of war right now, it doesn't do good to talk to the other Jedi Padawans or Jedi Knights about this, yeah. you know, because we don't we don't want them to lose trust in the Jedi Council. Um, I can really I, – I can definitely see May saying something like that. Um, <laughs> and this goes back to like who's creating your monuments, who's like dictating how these things are being put up, who exactly they're of, and – you know, what the educational component is to them. Um, There is a danger in sanitizing history um, from a lot of different angles. And I think that the the Lost 20 is is an example and even a potential example of how the Jedi are doing that themselves.
1: Yep. I think it's a really interesting concept. I would flip out for you. And honestly, I think it would be really cool if um, in the new season of The Clone Wars, Anakin is like looking at Ahsoka's new bust in the library and like thinking about it. it would I so would cool. freak
0: out. I would yeah. freak out. But again, I don't think it would happen because I think it would. If there was a situation where Anakin is like, you know, roaming the halls of the archives, and uh, he's like, "Why doesn't like Why doesn't Ahsoka get this kind of treatment that Dooku did?" Like, I just we know that Dooku's a Sith. He sells a bust here, and it's the Jedi's fault that Ahsoka is gone. And they're Mm -hmm. not even talking about it. Like I think it just it just snowballs even more into Anakin's story of like losing trust in the Jedi Order. So actually I I hope I hope there is a scene like that.
1: (laughs) 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 Come on, Dave. Come on, Dave.
0: Let's talk about the last twenty. Let's get into it.
1: (laughs) Give Caitlin what she wants. It's not even the people. It's just (laughs) not the people. It's just me. It's just me.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I would love to know if there were like any similarities between the 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 fallen knights or masters that have busts. Like, were they all people who just, you know, had a change of heart? Or were there people who were betrayed by the Order like Ahsoka was? Like, what's how far back do they go? Have there really only been 20
1: Jedi that have left the Order? That's what's crazy to me. Yeah. Is that the volume is so low to me that, like, 20, that's it? Or do they just pick and choose, like, some of the most Mm -hmm. interesting ones? You know?
0: I bet they're picking and choosing –
1: yeah, and I feel like it's now become like a legend status type situation where it's like, oh, the lost twenty. But yeah. there's definitely like lost four hundred. <laughs> <laughs> <They lost 400. laughs> yeah.
0: I bet I bet it is the ones who kind of have the this like change of heart in how they view the Jedi Order, not people like you know, like I don't know, like Quinlan Voss. Like if he had That's what
1: been, I was just thinking about.
0: You know, yeah. It's like what does he do? <laughs> You know, Where he I, fit like, into this?
1: Quinlan was the one that I was kind of hung up on, and I know his story is a little bit more complicated. But i I was thinking about like, oh, hmm wonder how that fits in. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it's like were they creating his bust, and then he came back, and they were like, oh,
1: scratch that, <laughs> pushing it off into the corner, <laughs>
0: like you know, chisel out his features, and then the thing happened with Ahsoka, and they're like, all right, gotta go make the. <laughs> the, like markings do they paint on the markings So, Smart like there's just a lot I need to know because we only
1: know one this makes it a really tough conversation <laughs> I,
0: I'm, this is I'm just welcoming the listeners into where my head spirals when I start thinking about the last 20
1: <laughs> now everyone's gonna go watch that deleted scene right now
0: yeah and be like I don't get it what is she talking about she, okay. <laughs> she made a lot out of nothing but here we are <laughs>
1: listeners here we are <laughs> Should we move on to talking about Sabine and Thrawn? Yes, let's. Listen, big deal. You got another problem. Women always figure out the truth.
0: Always. All right, welcome to part two, where we're going to be talking about Sabine and Thrawn in the Rebels series. Now, Sabine is kind of the first character that we've had in Star Wars that really has this consistent creative expression and, like, actually creating art and, like, culture within the Star Wars world. We've seen some other instances of this, especially, like, in Revenge of the Sith with the opera that uh, Anakin and Palpatine Mm -hmm. attend. But to see, like, actual art pieces in Star Wars it's not something that uh, we've gotten to see a lot of within the galaxy. And Sabine is really the first person that's doing this. And then we get Thrawn who comes in and he is like a whole other animal, especially when it comes to the art and culture of the people that he's kind of hunting. So like how are these characters really defined by their interest in
1: art and culture and history? It is so interesting because – okay. Well, just to say it for like the thousandth time, we are not huge into the, the Legends EU, um, so we're kind of a little bit unfamiliar with the old Legends version of Thrawn, But the Thrawn that I see is someone who appreciates art, and it's something that I had always like actually really liked about the character was this aspect of him and someone who loved like artifacts and tracking them down and understanding their importance. But something I think that's really interesting is that Thrawn, like, I find him to have very little empathy towards, like, the sentimental value of art. Um, And it's not to say that he's, like, a collector in just, like, just to collect and to have. I think that he does want to understand and he uses it. He uses art and artifacts to understand his opponents. Um, And I think he also enjoys it himself. But I don't think that, like, when you see... Um, him with the calicori, he doesn't care about Hera's emotions. He's just manipulative, um, towards that part of um, in like he's manipulative, manipulative in using this art to uh, you know, kind of scare his opponent. And I think that that is kind of a huge difference from Sabine, who. Has kind of found herself through art. I think that it's very clear that um, in her upbringing, her parents were interested in art. In like stylistic, stylistically, um, Sabine couldn't really find herself in terms of a style. And you kind of see that in the very end of Rebels when they see each other again. And um, her dad is like, "Oh, good, so you have a, your style has improved," something like that. <laughs> and um, but I think she has really. You you watch her art and her expression grow um, throughout the entire series. In she just gets way more. Um, into kind of like the, the craze of art and it is so out of what we're used to in Star Wars like it's completely it looks so different like
0: oh yeah definitely like seeing the fact that they have like a graffiti library at the, yeah. like a animation that's all Sabine's animation or um, graffiti I think is really interesting um it's, I- it's so cool Yeah. No, no, it really is. And I I love how it becomes – you know, we get to see – like you said, we get to see her grow where it's not just her tagging things and making like silly doodles in like Zeb and Ezra's uh, room, but it's her like actually doing something serious and like pouring some of herself into it, like especially Mm -hmm. with the um, uh, mural that she paints at the end of
1: Rebels of um, – that feels like a culmination of everything that she had learned um, yeah. thus far. It's like, it's so, she memorializes, I don't know. She, I, I get the sense that she worked so hard on that and worked for a really long time. And um, it's yeah. like a beautiful representation of their family. And yeah. that's something I just don't think that she was really like honing in on that craft, like in the very beginning of Rebels. She definitely was interested in that, but she, her... Once she kind of understood her style and, you know, was free to creatively express herself, I feel like by the end, her mural is so beautiful because it is – I don't know. There's so much history that's wrapped up in it.
0: Mm -hmm. And too, it was probably like a, a way for her to process her own feelings about everything that happened and like really being able to reflect on what that period in her life meant to her. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically with those people that were with her through some of the hardest moments of her life, um, dealing with her like biological family and then her found family too. And I think that Thrawn – it was interesting what you said about Thrawn not having any kind of empathy about the sentimental value of these pieces. And I think to a certain degree he does. Like he under he, – he strives to understand the – how what, – what these pieces mean to other people. And like you said, yes. like being manipulative of that, um, like the the Calicori, like Harris Calicori doesn't have, like he doesn't have that familial, sentimental attachment to it, but he strives to understand what Harris is. And as like, like the two of us who study art history, it's like As art historians, pseudo art historians, we want to know how other people responded to art. But for us, it's a way of just getting to understand those people more um, and who they were in any given period of time. Whereas for Thrawn, it was a way to use it as a means to an end and like you said, to manipulate and uh, use the situation to his advantage. And in this case, the situation is wrapped up in the calicory. But I think he – I think he does have an actual, like a genuine appreciation for these pieces and, mm-hmm. and almost like an elitist view of it. Like they – like I'm here saving these things. And I think at one point he tells Ezra, I think it's it's in one of the episodes where they're bombarding Lethal or something and he's like, all of your home will be lost. There are the few pieces that I've preserved which are beautiful and that I have in my collection, but it's all that will be left of Lethal." And I think like he genuinely feels sad that that place would be destroyed He's like, I got to do it, you know, like mm-hmm. I've got some of it and I'll be preserving it, but you're not going to have it.
1: Yeah. And it's not like he's displaying it in a museum for all the like Lothans to see, right? And like, <laughs> <Lothans>. remember. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know Is what that. What I don't know. I I don't know. I, it felt wrong, but it also felt right. So <laughs> <laughs> it sounded wrong. <laughs> I'll tell you. It's like Bothan, but like loath. I know that's what I was thinking too. And it was like that's not right. I'm not gonna say that, but you you said it, so <laughs> um I, I I feel like it is so person like he keeps all he Oh, let me back up. I feel like he Like you said, he has, like, this elitist point of view where he's like, oh, I'm saving this part of Lothal, but, like, it's mine, and it's in my office, and Mm -hmm. it's going to be for me. And he has no – he's not going to restore it to Lothal. It's not any sort of understanding of that this is, like, a could be used for remembrance of Lothal in, like, a a wonderful way. Instead, it's – I'm keeping them because I recognize that history is there, but, you know, it's mine. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and
0: I wonder, too,
1: because I've read a little bit of Heir
0: to the Empire, and by little, I mean, like, the first hundred pages, so, like, very little, um, But this was a part of Thrawn that I really enjoyed reading about, and I'm glad that it played a pretty prominent role in his depiction on Rebels. And it is, he is very specific in what he's collecting. He's creating this collection and almost this like weird shrine to the Rebel um, sect that he destroyed. Or is mm-hmm. thinking that he's going to be destroying. And it's like a, it's almost like a trophy of his conquest of them. Not only did he beat them, but he like took their culture and the pieces that represented them best and he used that against them. And I wonder like on other ships or other offices <laughs> if he has like similar collections to other cultures and societies. I'm sure he does, that he's like plundered
1: and stolen from and destroyed. I'm not that far in the Thrawn Alliances novel, and I didn't read the other Thrawn novel, but it is a part of his character that remains and has been cool. there since the beginning. Yeah. So it's cool. It is really yeah. cool.
0: It's um, it's interesting because Thrawn, you know, people always talk about like how the the Empire is very uh, reminiscent or similar to the Nazis, and I, I've always saw that. But for me, it's always been Thrawn that's been like – the biggest comparison for me because totally. one of the things that's always so interesting about Nazi history is how they are very invested in um, like archaeology and art history and like creating this history about the Aryan race, you know, that makes the Aryan race perfect um, through this lens of history, like to prove that they are the superior race. And part of what they did was collecting, quote unquote, aka stealing art from around the world and like hoarding it for themselves. Um, and that's to always create in- this
1: revisionist. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. That was the word I was
0: looking for. Revisionist. Yeah. Um, and seeing Thron do that, I was like, now that's that's some Nazi comparison there,
1: right? And it is. It adds another. Thron is a really good villain because he adds a different um, shade of evil to like the lexicon of empire villains and mm-hmm. imperial, imperial officers or anything like that. Um, And it's a huge reason is because of what you just said.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Let's talk a little bit about the Forces of Destiny episode with Sabine from season two because I freaking loved this episode. I freaked out when I watched it because I was like, this is me in an episode. Um. (laughs) It's called Art History. Um, It's literally Um. called Art History. (laughs) (laughs) But basically Sabine and her brother, um, they happen across this ancient Mandalorian statue of Terra Vizla, and it's being used as an outpost by the Empire. And they have like all of this scaffolding and um, like machinery attached to this statue. And they're like, we're going to free the statue. Um, but I love that as soon as Sabine sees it, she's like, oh my God, this is important. Like we have to save this statue. And her brother is like – why? But why? <laughs> it's just a statue. And she she talks about how she says, there's so much history and hope in one carving. And I love this episode because it just, it really, um, in such a short, you know, two-minute way, it really emphasizes just how much like our culture and our landscape and like monuments and historic sites really do play a part in who we are and our cultural identity. And they are important and worth saving. Like they mean something to people. And in Wartime they like that's how you know something bad is coming is when you know warring countries or cultures when they start destroying each other's history, it's like a precursor to things to come because once you destroy their history you take away their identity and once you take away their identity it's almost easier to win the war as it were and it can be really scary and it's you know so many things have so many pieces of history have been lost that way and uh, i was really glad to see it represented in star wars because i
1: i think that's a really interesting topic i totally agree i Love the um the fact that is that the Tarvizla, it's the statue of Tarvizla. And obviously, like the Mandalorian history is really fascinating. And I'm I am so eager to dive more into it. Um, but I think it's really cool that so Tarvizla is the creator and the first wielder of the dark saber, which at this point Sabine has, and she frees this statue with the dark saber. So it's, it's this giving back um, in a way of it's the person that, you know, the statue is memorializing. Sabine is able to give back to what he – by using the item that he created. And I, I think that it, there's some symmetry there that's just really cool and, like, very mm-hmm. Star Wars, very poetic.
0: Oh, yeah. Um, like a handing
1: off. Exactly. And the, the other thing that I think is really great is that the – you know, this is only, like, a three-minute clip. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> – in this episode, it they go really above and beyond. Like They mentioned this like three times, I swear, about how um, Sabine's like, oh, he looks sad. And it, I mean, it's a statue. It doesn't change expression. And the brother's like, are you kidding me? Like, what the heck? Are you really? Did you just say he really looked sad? Or are you talking to a statue? Really? Yeah. And by the end, when they freed the statue <laughs> with the dark saber, um, the brother is like, I think he's smiling. Like he looks so happy. And I really like this idea that you can, you know, put emotions on inanimate pieces of art. Um, I think we all do it with like the Mona Lisa, I think is a really great example of this is, Mm -hmm. is the Mona Lisa smiling? Is she not smiling? I think that if you look at it and you think that she's not smiling, she's not smiling. If you look at it and think that she's smiling, she is smiling. And um, it all depends on your own personal mood. And I think that at this point, Sabine felt like she had preserved this part of history for her people and therefore both of them, um, both of these Ren children were happy that they were able to preserve that and therefore they see that happiness reflected in that statue.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a really, I really like that part of that episode where he's like, oh, it's smiling now. Like it looks happy and Sabine's like, yeah, all right. (laughs) <laughs> I, you care, you care, um, but I did want to bring up this book that I love that I've read a couple times actually, and it's called Loot, and it is by an author named Sharon Waxman, and basically it's about um, the repatriation and. Um, the Repatriation of Ancient Artifacts. So repatriation is the term that we use for artifacts that have – like are in the British Museum or the Met or some other country and cultural institution, usually a Western one, and the returning of those artifacts to their country of origin and all of the battles and legal battle, battles and emotional battles that go into that process. It's, it's a fascinating book. It's really accessible too. It's not filled with like – academic jargon. The author is a journalist, so she writes um, in a really clear way that's easy to understand. But she has this quote in the introduction that says, the battle over ancient treasure is, at its base, a conflict over identity and over the right to reclaim the objects that are its tangible symbols. And I think that that's like so perfectly summed up in this episode of Forces of Destiny, because you had this tangible symbol of Mandalore, of a really important figure in Mandalorian history that has been shrouded quite literally, by the Empire. And Sabine and her brother are able to go and take off that shroud of the Empire and reclaim it for Mandalore. Um, Even though it's this really small part of the war, it's a really big emotional victory for them as Mandalorians. And I think that that's I just love this episode so much. I've watched it a couple of times. <laughs> it's a good one. It's a good it one. It is. It is. And the, the book Loot is really excellent too. So if you're at all interested in cultural property, um, you should definitely check it out. So that's, that's my pitch for that book. <laughs> <laughs> okay.
1: We should talk also about Sabine and the best episode ever, A World Between Worlds. The best episode ever. And
0: I – I I if Resistance has an episode that can top
1: World Between Worlds, I will be amazed <laughs> because I don't know this, how it can. This episode I, is I everything. Yeah, it's so it's so amazing. There's so much. I mean, just as an aside, like there's just so much that was built into the episode. Um, I don't know, it's amazing. It's just so good. <laughs> yeah. And one of the best parts of this
0: episode is Sabine like going all art history all over the mortise. Um, mural, which by the way, we're going to be talking about Rebels spoilers here through season four and the finale. So if you haven't watched it, um, I'd skip ahead to our third part Um when we're talking about spoilers. <laughs> um, so we have this mural of the Mortis gods on the side of the Lothal Temple, which if you watch Clone Wars, you've obviously seen these gods before, but we've never, they weren't called gods in the episode and we've never really seen them anywhere else. But to see them here all the way in Lothal, it was like, oh, what are, what are they doing here? <laughs> and <laughs> hey, hey, Haydn? Haydn? Haydn, Hayden, Hayden. Aiden, who is, I guess, a croon of the emperor and, and is a, a empire archivist, possibly, or historian. He's been studying these images and uh, trying to understand what they mean and gain access into the temple. But Sabine and Ezra are the only ones who actually gain access. So he kidnaps Sabine and is basically making her, like, explain to him – the this mural and how it works and how the symbols and the imagery of the mural tell us what it means which it's what art historians do all the time it's looking at the visual language of paintings and artifacts and monuments to talk about what they meant for the people who created them and i just i think that this episode is everything <laughs>
1: Well, it's really cool because you have Ezra doing his thing and, like, using the Force and, like, doing the thing. And then you have Sabine, like, completely doing her thing. And, like, it's great. Um, I also think that there's something there that I just thought about is that the fact that Haydn looks very much like a monk. Mm -hmm. And if you think back about when there was no printing press and the Bible needed to be published and um, different theologians needed to have their theologies published, um, monks would transcribe them manually and fall asleep. And kind of, that's where we kind of lost a lot of meaning meaning into like what the original text was to the differences through all these different transcriptions. And I think that there's something there that you can compare to This guy, Haydn trying to understand something that he doesn't really get um, and, like, looking at it straight away and needing, like, Sabine, who kind of understands way more. I love how she says, like, I'm smarter than you. Yeah. Um, There. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. What
0: I think is um, kind of going back because we talked about this um, pretty in depth during our Fulcrum Files about this episode, but I went went back and rewatched this scene, and there were some interesting things that I don't think I really thought too much about when I first watched these episodes earlier this year. But Hayden, when he Hayden, when he's telling Sabine about this mural he says that these are the images of the mortis gods this is the first time we kind of hear them called gods within the context of star wars um, in universe and he says that they've appeared throughout the years within the jedi archives that he's been studying and sabine calls these figures the father son and daughter as archetypes um so you know when we talk about archetypes they're basically like a standard image for these um like they're stereotypes but within the art world Basically, and yes. what I think is really interesting is when you watch the rebels recon about this episode, um, Dave Filoni talks about how George created these mortis gods pretty early on in uh, production for the Clone Wars and kind of as a way to talk about the force. And Dave says they tested the gods tested Anakin to see if he was the prophesized chosen one, which seemed to be a popular prophecy among different force wielding groups. So, like, what does all of this mean? Like, what what is the benefit of, like, reading this mural in this kind of art history format? Like, what is the benefit
1: um, to us as viewers of Star Wars? As viewers, I mean, I think overall, the father, son, and daughter do represent the balance of the universe and the Chosen One prophecy and, like, the truth behind the prophecy. Um, And... When the door was closed to the world between worlds, the balance was kind of off, at least in this art world, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And it wasn't until the hands, they did some hand, funky hand stuff, you know, hands are language. (laughs) Yeah. That, um, you know, things changed and the balance was kind of reset. And that's why it was able to open. And I think that that's where the archetypes come into it, because it is essentially Unbalanced won't open, balanced open. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think the hand part of that is so interesting,
0: especially oh, yeah. in light of The Last Jedi. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, my favorite thing ever. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> in universe, confirm that hands are a language. That's a legitimate um, quote. <laughs> what I also really enjoyed, too, kind of jumping on to Some of our Episode 9 speculation is when Haydn says that uh, father, son, and daughter, they're sometimes referred to as father, son, and daughter. Meaning that perhaps as he's come across these images in the Jedi archives, they've been referred to as other names. So maybe not father, son, and daughter. Maybe brother, sister, maybe even husband, wife, maybe um, dark and light. They've had these different names and they've taken on these different roles. And um, those names and roles can change depending on who's telling the story. And I know that some of the like Raylo theories have touched upon this idea of Kylo and Ray representing like daughter and son almost. And then like the Force or even Luke have represented father. And it's about them creating this balance. Um, within the force, within the cosmic force, and that's what Ray and Kylo are like destined to do in episode nine. That's what we think anyway. And so I think that it was really interesting that Haydn points out that sometimes they're referred to as father, son, and daughter, implying that they can be called other names. I love it.
1: Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I live for it. I just – I – I've always really loved the like head scratching nature of Mortis and I hope to do a full episode on Mortis and get and really dive deep into it but I think that this is so key that you know I think that there was a major complaint from a lot of people about like oh the force shouldn't be defined and it shouldn't be fully represented into like beings um and that was the major complaint out of Mortis but I think that you see here not necessarily them walking back on it but an understanding that Perhaps that these aren't the only beings that represent this sort of thinking, this the understanding of a balance, mm-hmm. um, and that's what makes me excited about episode nine because I do think that there's a lot to be argued there. For that's the direction that they're going in. It just makes sense. Like it really does make sense. It really,
0: like it really does. Like especially when, because even in the Mortis trilogy, they talk about how once daughter has died, like the balance is gone. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, you know, goes into more like, oh, more of that speculation that, you know, perhaps Ray or Kylo or specifically Kylo could die in episode nine. But is that – like, is that the balance? I don't think so. That wasn't the case for daughter and brother or daughter and son in the Mortis trilogy. And anyway, I, I really love how you get these little pieces, you know, that, you know, the chosen one is a popular prophecy among different force wielding groups. Okay, so how many force wielding groups are they? <laughs> what do their prophecies look like? Are they focused on one person? Are they focused on a pair, like the like twins or lovers or parents? Like, how does that work? And then to this idea that the that Haydn has been looking through the Jedi archives. Like, how much information are the Jedi, have the Jedi been collecting through the years about the Mortis gods, about these other force wielding groups? Like, how does their understanding of Mortis factor into Jedi philosophy? Or is it just like a history that doesn't really exist? Like are they short-sighted like that? Or do they actually um, have an understanding about the cosmic force and how perhaps the father, son, and daughter factor into that?
1: Well, I think that they do. I think that off the top of my head, I can think of a couple of force-wielding groups. Um, the Sisters, the mm-hmm. um Jedha, and the guardians um, of the wells, yeah, the guardians of the wells. And um, can you think of any other there's ones? The, there's the Bendu. Like, were there other Bendu? Right. So yeah. The like Bendus. There's, there's, but that's not necessarily a group. But I think that if there are more. <laughs> there was Many a clan. Bendu. <laughs> was I there a um, <laughs> like, <laughs> Who knows? The possibilities are limitless. Yes. Ben- Bendini. Bendini. <laughs>
0: Bendito? Uh, oh my god. Bendito? Yeah. So cute.
1: Okay. Um, but I think I would be so interested in reading what like the guardians of the wills have to say about the balance of the force and like whether mm-hmm. anything that we're familiar with in regards to mortis comes into that sort of understanding. Or like what does it say in the Sacred Jedi text about this? Is it anything? Is it something? Will we hear them talk about it? It's easy to understand. Or like the the one true force wielder um, that is uh, Jedi Prime that is represented in The Last Jedi on the ground in the yin and yang symbol. Yeah, but that's a like, Jedi.
0: That's not. Right, I know,
1: but like what about the older form of Jedi? Like what did they yeah. think of it, you know? Yeah. So it, I would be so curious to – even if it's in like a form of like cave paintings or something, like to hear all these different um, understandings of story and canon, essentially in universe canon, it's cool. Mm-hmm. It's cool to think about. It is. I think
0: you you made me think about when you talked about Jedi Prime, um, like how the Jedi probably had a a really um, complete understanding of the Force with Jedi Prime, and he was like oh, I'm going to – like I got to tell other people about this. But through the years, through the millennia, um, however long it was, as they became more um, like bureaucratic almost, it's like they lost that um, like childlike understanding of the Force where it just came so easily. Um, and, you know, kind of probably this like really esoteric understanding was lost among the Jedi and, you know, left to a section in the Jedi archives. Um that only Jocasta knew really knows about, <laughs> or, does or they she? have like the, who knows, or I don't know, or like they have these vestiges of it, but it's all, like they've taken on like a story, like nature to the Jedi, and it's like they can't access that um, understanding or connection with the Force or with the cosmic force. I don't know. I, I don't really know what I'm saying. I'm just saying there are probably like a lot of layers there, and it's it's really interesting what all Haydn has gotten his hands on from the Jedi Archives and the fact that they've – like the, these gods have come up a couple of times. Like do the Guardian of Wills call them something different? Um, is the Bendu in those archives too? Like I don't know. Like may, maybe maybe Father is called Bendu in some places because Bendu was really about the balance and Father was too. So I wonder if those, I don't know, have any kind of connection within the, the Force
1: um, and like the archives. It would be really cool to see Bendu somehow represented in Resistance somehow. But I know yeah. that they're not going to really go the Jedi route, but I I think that it would be cool if they there was like a reference or some sort of art painting about the Bendu. I don't even know. I oh, yeah. I I think that a continuation of like Bendu as a figurehead would be cool to see.
0: I love the Bendu so much i i'm obsessed <laughs> with him so i'm all for any bendu recurrence in resistance or even in clone wars i'm obsessed with this headcanon of anakin visiting being visited by the bendu um i'm like really into that but i don't think it's gonna happen <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's okay you can dream it's about okay it.
0: yeah i had canon that's what fanfic is <laughs> for <laughs> yeah exactly exactly all right. So, do you have anything else to say about Mortis? The the problem with Mortis is you can we can get too far into
1: Mortis. <laughs> yes, I mean I have like hours to say about Mortis, <laughs> but no, I'm good. Okay, perfect. Well, let's move on to part three. All
0: right. We have. Uh, I mean, this building looks like a giant building, but this whole end here is a library. This whole end over here is restaurants. Mm-hmm. So it's it's really which is the the core of any film company is to have a lot of research and a lot of food. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to part three, where we're going to be talking about preservation in the real world and how it relates to Star Wars. And I'm excited for this section because we're going to be talking about physical places, um, mainly in California, and like how they are actually preserved and like what that process looks like. So basically the things that I do (laughs) in my life or am learning about, I guess. (laughs) Um, But I wanted to read this quote to kind of start us off. Um, It's kind of Really, it should be at the end of this episode, but I'm going to read it now at the start of part three. Um, It kind of talks about what I think, like how preservation and art and culture and how knowing about them and the education of all of these pieces is really important. It's from a book called Glittering Images, A Journey Through Art from Egypt to Star Wars by an author named Camille Pajilla, which first off, let me tell you that when I saw the title of this book, From Egypt to Star Wars, I was like, oh my God. (laughs) Because I wanted to be an Egyptologist for like my whole life. And so seeing a book that referenced both of them in the title, I was – I didn't even look at it. I just I put it in my basket and bought it. <laughs>
1: it's amazing.
0: Anyway, so uh, this book, uh, the quote from this book that I wanted to read says, Art unites the spiritual and material realms. In an age of alluring magical machines, a society that forgets art risks losing its soul. It's, like, really deep, but (laughs) I like it a lot. Um, So first, I really want to talk about, like, physical places, and uh, the first one is kind of the most important, and it is the mecca of all Star Wars fans, which is the Lucasfilm Archive. The Archive is, like, the white whale of Star Wars fans. I feel like there's never any kind of
1: good understanding of just how vast it is. (laughs) I it's funny because on the Star Wars show I really enjoy those segments that they've been doing in the past year where they go and visit the archives and they kind of open a box and they see what they find Mm -hmm. um but it's clear from that that they're not just going to the archives that like we think of in our brain that are I think at Skywalker Ranch but they're going to these like secret um areas where they have like Lucasfilm clearly has so many storage units and um, in secret, undisclosed locations. And um, that's really funny to me to think that, like, maybe across the country they have secret garages where, <laughs> like, Darth Vader's original suit is or something like that.
0: You could have crazy. a Star Wars storage
1: unit near you. You could. Like, who knows?
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I know that on Skywalker Ranch, the archive, because I know they have at least one archive there. They could have more, but there's at least one, and they just call it The barn.
1: <laughs> like, amazing
0: yeah it's so yeah. big
1: too there's a couple it, of videos out there that you that kind of go through it one that was recently done i think in it wasn't that recent i think in like 2011 or 2010 um by star wars i think and it's really good and you can see all the stuff that i think now is pretty re- well represented in the star wars power of costume exhibit um but there's other really awesome like clay models and things that really just are really fun to look at Mm-hmm.
0: They also have – I know that in The Force Awakens behind the scenes, one of them, one of the behind the scenes featurettes, they show um, like JJ and the producers and some of the crew like going into the archives. It's like a field trip. So <laughs> and they, I don't really know what they're doing. They just get to like look around, I guess. It's like part of their like initiation into the <laughs> Lucasfilm family. <laughs> it's a creative but- process. <laughs> it's the creative process, yeah. I, I think it's fun that, it, like, everyone – they always talk about the Lucasfilm archives and, like, how they got to go through it. But, yeah, I think – like, part of me thinks that all of those storage units are on Skywalker Ranch property, and they're just, like – we just don't really, like, know. <laughs> we mm-hmm. think they're going off to these crazy places, but they're really not. They're just, like, next door, like, a mile down the road. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, like, row of warehouses that are just all – um Archives. And by archive, I mean archive is kind of like a um a very ambiguous term and it it, it you can change it to fit whatever you want. Like Lucasfilm has their archives, which from what we've seen of it anyway seems to be like physical props um, and like painting, matte paintings that they use and like Ralph McQuarrie's original concept art and um, you know like the the Millennium Falcon the model Millennium Falcon and, and Jabba's Palace that were used for the long shots of Star Wars but then they also have the library which is within the main building of Skywalker Ranch and is like this insane collection which doing some research I had no idea how big The Lucasfilm library was. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I think I thought – because you see pictures of the library and it's beautiful. And I mean, George Lucas purchased this property um, in a valley in Marin County, um, Skywalker Ranch. It's like almost 5,000 acres, I think. (laughs) It's really big. He wanted it to be like a studio away from LA. Um, And he started building it in the 80s. And he basically just like Created it, designed it however he wanted to. Um, there's actually this really interesting article about it on ArchitecturalDigest.com, which um, we'll put it, we'll put a link to it somewhere in the show notes or on our website or something like that. Um, but it's talking about how Lucas designed Skywalker Ranch, and he was really influenced by like the Victorian era of architecture, which. Victorian as, a, as an architectural style is like very fluid and it means a lot of different things to different people. I know a lot of people in the field now don't really like the term Victorian to talk about architectural styles, um, but George Lucas did and I'm going to read <laughs> this little bit about how he designed Skywalker Ranch because it's like so perfectly George Lucas and um, Because Lucas relishes eclecticism. As Roger Ebert once observed of Star Wars, he, quote, cheerfully plunders the past. Lucas himself has described the look of the films as that of a used future, inspired by Apollo spacecraft returning from missions littered with weightless candy bar wrappers and old Tang jars, none more exotic than the family station wagon. Skywalker Ranch is the flip side, the new buildings of a used past, ones of which Lucas wrote the script, sketched floor plans and elevations, and then collaborated with teams of in-house and outside architects and interior designers. I've spent my life reconstructing old styles, he says, with obvious enthusiasm. My old office was a big old Victorian-style house in San Anselmo. Not a grand Victorian, but a ranch Victorian with big porches and whatnot. I'm very enamored with history and old things." It didn't have much uh, – even Star Wars was old-fashioned. It didn't have much to do with space. It was based on 1940s cinematic style and two to 3,000-year-old mythology. Now, I love that George said that he worked at a Victorian ranch, which – I'll be honest. I don't really know what a Victorian ranch is. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I've seen – I've looked at a good number of pictures of Skywalker Ranch today and um, – It's, I don't know, it's got a lot of pieces of, I guess, what you would consider Victorian architecture, but um, it, it really doesn't look like anything that's from that period, like the late 19th century. It's sprawling, it's big, it's obviously built in the 1980s, and that's not a bad thing. Like, I think Lucas knows what he's doing. Like, he knows that he's picking these pieces that he likes and creating his own world here, which has a lot of heavy influence from the quote unquote Victorian age. I don't know, I just find like the construction of this place so
1: fascinating. Totally. I was just looking at the photos of the library. And it really reminds me of that JP Morgan library that we visited in New York City. Yes, um, Which I think is a Victorian style library. Am I right about that? Uh, you know I I don't remember either. I, I can't think of what the outside looks like,
0: but it does have a lot of it has stained glass in it and it has some Tiffany windows in it too if I remember correctly.
1: Which is um, exactly what the Lucasfilm Research Library looks like at yes. least as of 2012 in this photo. Yeah. Wow, it's so crazy. I just clicked on this article. See, Caitlin's an expert in all this. So, um <laughs> but I it has over 20,000 titles, over 17,000 feature films, documentaries in all different formats. Um, it's just insane how, and I'm sure that it has grown exponentially since this article was written, which I think was in 2012. Like I said, yeah. um, it's like, I can't imagine being a filmmaker, which is the purpose of it. And we talked about this in our, by George series, but I can't really imagine being a filmmaker and having access to all this like amazing art. It really is an artist's retreat. Even Skywalker Ranch is filled with like literally an amazing art collection. Mm -hmm. Like we're talking like priceless works of art that are on the wall. And I can't imagine being anything but inspired by walking around there and seeing the kind of art that surrounds you and knowing that you could also create a, you know, a piece of art that could withstand the test of time. It's great.
0: Yeah, I know that George, when he was making Skywalker Ranch like this, so the the library that we're talking about, it's in the main house of Skywalker Ranch. There are a lot of different buildings, like um, ILM is there, Skywalker Sound is there, um... They've got a winery, a vineyard, <laughs> olive oil, a, f- a small farm, a lake, their own fire station. They've got a lot going on. Um, but this, George, like this library was part of his initial plan for this building. And his office is like hidden behind a secret door in the library because he wanted easy access to it. And, you know, as he said himself, and what we talked about when looking at kind of how this this space was designed is that he pulls a lot from history and he wanted a space that was devoted to that. But I had no idea. Like I just thought it was like a little library. (laughs) But the fact that it has 27,000 books, (laughs) 27,000 just books, that's not including video and audio. Newspapers, like said, it's
1: crazy, it's, it's endless. It's insane. and that was in 2012 when that record yeah. was written, that was before. You know, they made four movies and a whole another animated series, and I, you know, completely expanded. <laughs> it's insane. I I don't even have
0: words. And they have four research um, librarians there who, um, like, a filmmaker will call and say, "I need um, image, like, I need a what do they call it? They call it a detailed pictorial history of you know, 1942 hairstyles." And these researchers, like, go through everything that's in the the Lucasfilm library, which is an archive at this point, and, like, compile this material for these filmmakers and designers and writers and set designers and everything to use as reference. And I thought it was so interesting. We'll also link to this article, too, but it, it talks about how these researchers have kind of created their own categorizing system for all of these pieces and – because – the things that a filmmaker asks for are very different than something that like a, an academic historian might ask for um, based off of what kind of uh, film that they're making. And I think it's so cool that like all of these items don't fit in this library. Like they're stored somewhere too. <laughs> There's mm-hmm. like another library archive annex off of this main <laughs> research library and i i'm like very fascinated i'm fascinated by everything in star wars but especially skywalker ranch as of like the past week i feel like i've been trying to understand everything i can about it um i've been looking at like tax maps <laughs> of the area like <laughs> going to some weird places <laughs> researching like the real estate value <laughs> and like
1: how much how much do. is it caitlin tell tell the world
0: so the so Skywalker Ranch is over five thousand or it's just at five thousand acres. It's along a road called Lucas Valley Road, which that like was George Liam Lucas before. Did, yeah, 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 that's just like a happy coincidence. And uh, the pro they paid over a million dollars in property taxes this year, and the property itself is worth over one hundred and twenty million dollars, <laughs> just the land. Cool. <laughs> nice. <laughs> like who knows how much everything on. That land is worth too. Like they've got a vineyard. Anyway, it's, it's ridiculous. Um, and so kind of what I wanted to talk about in regards to the archive and uh, Skywalker Ranch is this uh, – I talking about like the process of listing a site as a national register of historic places. Um, and people like throw that around a lot and no one really understands what it is. So – I know you and I have talked about it a little bit, but do you feel like you have a good understanding of what the National Register of Historic Places is?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think so. I think I have like a solid understanding of it.
0: Okay. Perfect. So the National Register of Historic Places is a physical list um, of historic places throughout the country. It can be a building. It can be a site. It can be a district, which a district is a collection of buildings. It can be a structure, which is like a bridge would be considered a structure, an archaeological site. Um, anything like that is um, eligible for a listing on the National Register. Now, a lot of people think that once you're listed on the National Register of Historic Places, you can't make any changes to your building, and that is... Very false. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I make the analogy for people um, that the National Register is kind of like the United Nations. Um, The United Nations gives you a lot of recommendations and guidelines and things like that. But at the end of the day, the United Nations aren't the ones that are going to be like declaring war on you if you do something wrong. It's going to be like another country. (laughs) Um, And the National Register is kind of the same way. But being listed on the National Register is really important. It's a really it's a highly significant distinction for different properties and districts. And there are some places that are attached to star Wars that are listed under, um, listed within the national register. And part of how you get listed is, uh, you have to talk about the significance of that place. And so a place like Skywalker ranch would be highly significant for its contribution to pop culture. Um, but it's not eligible yet because it has to be a site has to be at least fifty years old in order to be eligible for a listing on the National Register of Historic Places. And Skywalker Ranch is about 10 years away from that. So I think it'll be I, I would I always wonder if George Lucas would want Skywalker Ranch to have that kind of distinction. And part of me thinks he does, but part of me thinks he doesn't.
1: Why? Why don't why do you think he wouldn't?
0: I think because he is so
1: private –
0: and again, the National Register doesn't dictate what you can or cannot do. And Skyward Ranch wouldn't be – its architecture wouldn't be its main – that's not what's most important about that place. It's not its architecture. It's the culture, the people that have been in there, the – the things that have been created there—that's what makes that site, that district significant. It's not the building, but I don't know. I—I I feel like he might be a little hesitant about it. Um, and I don't because it know is, it's it's
1: slightly bureaucratic. It's um, very which I bureaucratic. Think yeah, is the reason why I think George probably wouldn't be into it. But um, it's—it's yeah. it's very much like, why would I be under any sort of rules? And I know that you just said that it's not the rules, mm-hmm. but like. There are rules, (laughs) and you do have to check a couple boxes, and I don't know if George would want to check a couple boxes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, the thing is it's not – so it's not the national register that tells you what to do. It's rather the state and local – ordinances and policies that tell you what to do and for some of them it's like if you become a national register if you're listed on the national register then you um, you're not following any rules set up by the national register but you are beholden to follow rules that are laid out by the state or by your county or your city um, those are the people that make those ki- that make those kinds of rules. And I don't know a lot about California and how um, they're like historic societies or their preservation planning. I don't really know a lot about how all of that works. Um, but it's different it's different for every state and it's different even for every county. So they would have to go through that. Now the benefit of being listed on the National Register is that it um, gives you access to grant money. Um, to do restoration or open up a museum at the property. You know, it, it lets you do a lot of different things. But that's not ever something that, like, Lucasfilm would need. <laughs> they don't need grant money. They, they make the grants. <laughs> they fund the grants. <laughs> and again, it, it wouldn't even be Luke – it wouldn't even be George that would be making that decision. Well, no, because he still owns Skywalker Ranch, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So you would have to get his sign off on it in order be to be part of like, it. In some way. Yeah, he definitely would be. But you have to have – the property owner has to agree to be listed or to be nominated rather. And uh, I don't think he would want to be nominated. (laughs) But I could be wrong. I'd be really happy to be wrong about that because I would like that to be my job (laughs) is to (laughs) research, list, create that nomination for them. (laughs) And just like become best friends with everyone there. (laughs) It would be great. It would be be so great. Um, (laughs) I'd be really happy with that. But uh, a site related to Star Wars that already is listed on the National Register of Historic Places is a place you and I have been, which is Grauman's Chinese Theater in uh, Hollywood.
1: Yeah. uh, I'm still, like, honestly not over that we saw a Star Wars movie at Grauman's Chinese Theater. I don't think I'll ever be over it. But, um, yeah, that's it's just kind of crazy. It's, it's
0: really insane. Now, Grauman's Chinese Theater was built in 1927, and as you know, it's where Star Wars first premiered. And it has a lot of uh, accolades when it comes to its historic significance. It's a Los Angeles historical cultural monument, and it was listed in 1968, which is actually really early in preservation history. Preservation didn't become like a, an actual field um, or an actual Thing in the United States until 1966. Um, So, to have things that were built in the 20th century being listed in 1968 is actually a really big deal because in the 60s, people were really concerned mostly with the demolition of 19th century buildings. So, things that were built in the 1800s, that's what most people were thinking about when they thought about historic buildings and buildings that needed to be preserved. They weren't really thinking so much about 20th century buildings. But it's really cool that in Los Angeles they were because obviously most things out there were built in the, the very end of the 19th and the beginning of the 20th century. It's also listed as a California historic resource, um, and then it's also part of a district on the National Register of Historic Places called the Hollywood Boulevard Commercial and Entertainment District, which is a mouthful and contains over 102 buildings that
1: are all on that strip in Hollywood. Which I'm so glad that it's a di- district, but man, it's just not the best, is it? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I I think that... It's so awesome to walk that area and see all these huge theaters where huge events happen. But, man, it is not the nicest part of Los Angeles.
0: Well, that's the thing. It's like that's not – even though it's a district, all of those property owners can do whatever they want to their building. Which Um, makes sense. At least by the National Register standards. I don't know what California Historic Resource or Los Angeles says about uh, renovations to their historic properties. But – by the national register, that's perfectly fine, and things can actually be taken off the national register. So the district could change, it could shrink, or it could be eliminated altogether, and it would lose that um, designation. Interesting, yeah. But part of the, um, you can actually go and look. This this district was created in 1985, which is like, you know, you're kind of at the end of like the first wave of preservation in the mid 80s. Um, but part of the the form that you have to fill out is you have to – it's a very long form. I've read it. If you would like to read it, I can send it to you because um, it's got 102 buildings that it talks about. But you have to go through the history of the area, why it's considered significant. Are these buildings – do they still maintain their historic integrity? And by integrity, we mean um, – is most of the building still there, the original building, or has it undergone so many renovations that there's nothing really historic left about it anymore. Um, But they also have to talk about why each building is significant and, I thought when I started reading this, I thought for sure that they would list Star Wars as one of the um, reasons that Grauman's Chinese Theater was considered significant, Uh, but they didn't. Um, It's listed as significant for its fantasy architecture um, and for the footprints of celebrities in the concrete outside of it. So they're mm-hmm. really – it's funny because they're not really talking so much about what went on inside of of Grauman's Chinese Theater, but more so its architecture and the, you know, the concrete um, handprints and footprints, which I thought was really interesting, actually.
1: I mean, I would think the same thing. I think what's really important and what's really cool about the theater isn't necessarily the premieres. Like, I think that's something, like, great about it. But at the end of the day, it's unique because of the way it looks. And it's aspects that, I don't know, the history that is built into those concrete slabs that mm-hmm. you see recreated in Disney's Hollywood Studios in Orlando, Florida. Um, it's really cool. Yeah, I guess I thought it would be all of it. Um, yeah, you know, yeah. Because- I think that that's, that's a better understanding. Or, like, I'm yeah. pretty sure the Wizard of Oz and Open there. And I feel like, yeah, I think that maybe that... I would definitely, in terms of if I was registering that as a historic place, I think that I would put Wizard of Oz over Star Wars just because I feel like that might even be a more like cultural cor- cornerstone um, of Hollywood um, at that time. I think. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah.
0: And I think also maybe like maybe possibly why they didn't include that piece of it was that there were so many, you know, cultural icons coming through that area, that district, that it's, like, like it's almost, like, common sense. Like, of course, there were, you know, premieres of insane movies happening at Grauman's Chinese Theater, just like there were next door. Um, right. That's just, like, <laughs> given by the area that they're in, and almost, like, it's not as special there. I don't know, because, it's like, that happens all the time, but, like, this fantasy architecture component is really what makes Grauman stand out from the other theaters and buildings that are in that district. Exactly. It's uh it's really interesting. Um it's a it's fun to see because these pictures were taken in the 80s to evolve these buildings and things have obviously changed since the 80s too. So even just kind of comparing how they looked um, when we were just there in 2018 to how they looked, you know. Thirty years ago, I think it's really fascinating, and obviously, I, I care a lot about that kind of stuff. So I'm like, oh, okay, this building has changed, and the sidewalk is in a different place, or you know, whatever it is. Um, there are there are a lot of really interesting YouTube videos about Chinese, the Grandman Chinese Theater. Um, they redid the interior entirely, and the way they had to go about that in order to protect the interior carvings and paintings of the theater is really interesting. They like. Basically put a tent in the middle of the building um, in order to rip out the flooring and the seats and everything in order to put in new seats, make it into an IMAX theater. Um, it's really interesting. I'll, I'll put that on our YouTube channel. Um, if you're, oh, do it. If you're interested <laughs> in the history of Chinese – if you're interested in the history of Grauman's Chinese Theater. I don't know why it's so hard for me to say Gramman's Chinese Theater. Um <laughs> And then kind of the last thing I wanted to touch on um, unless I'm forgetting something Charlotte is about this idea of studying Star Wars as art itself and film as art which I feel like is kind of a relatively young um, field like filmology.
1: (laughs) I mean I think just in general because like in the history of the world film is a pretty new medium Mm -hmm. still I think that in like the grand scheme of things but I don't think I would go as far as to say it's like a nouveau understanding to study film because I think that um, from its beginning I think that people were wanting to understand this under the same umbrella as other art form Um, but I do I I, am with you I'm I'm kind of in two camps of it
0: yeah yeah I I think it's I think especially with filmmakers like George Lucas being able to like look at their films as a work of art that they've created, you know, something like Star Wars is very different than like a rom-com, you know, like a a rom-com has, there are things to understand about it and the way that like shots are framed and the color choices that are used for characters and things like that. It's very important, but it's very different than Star Wars where, Everything is kind of used as visual imagery. Like every piece that you see in any given frame, um, there was, it was very deliberate. Like that decision was very deliberate by George and mostly by George, (laughs) but by other creators too in that process. Definitely. Yeah. And so the last thing I wanted to read before we kind of wrap up, um, because I really like, I mean, I feel like this is what we do a lot is talking about Star Wars as art and kind of understanding um, how the imagery in these films can affect our reading of it. Like the hands are a language. That's a perfect example of how it literally changed the course of what happened in Rebels and how you and I are conflating that to what it's going to mean in The Last Jedi and for our characters that aren't considered art in The Last Mm -hmm. Jedi, like they're actual functioning characters. Um, And so I wanted to read this excerpt from that book I mentioned earlier, Glittering Images, um, where she finishes by talking about – the Mustafar sequence in Revenge of the Sith as an art piece and how um, she picks up on this imagery and relates it to George Lucas and his life, too. I think it's really interesting. Like, it took me back to my art history days. <laughs> and you you haven't read this book, right?
1: No, but I've, I've heard her speak about Revenge of the Sith.
0: Oh, you have? I didn't know that.
1: No, no, not in, in real life. There's a YouTube video about it.
0: Oh, okay. And
1: it's, it's really interesting. Just as an aside – um listeners she has I'm pretty sure it's Revenge of the Sith and it's been a while right Caitlin but she talks about how she thinks that Revenge of the Sith I think is the greatest film in modern cinema and what it is doing in terms of um art and understanding relationships and um it's it's real I now I really want to watch that again and hear her talk about that
0: yeah, I yeah. Didn't come across that. She does talk about um, how she thinks George Lucas is the greatest artist of our time.
1: Oh, I mean, like, maybe she, it's that.
0: I mean, it's like, it's all in the same vein. It's like the yeah. same thing. Yeah. Um, and how his, like, him using technology and art together is like what sets him apart. Exactly. But uh, this, um, this excerpt is taken from Glittering Images and it's talking about the duel on the lava river in Mustafar. It goes, It is one of the most passionate scenes ever filmed between two men, with McGregor close to weeping. The personal drama is staged against a physical one. Wrangling and wrestling, Anakin and Obi-Wan fall against the control panels of a vast mineral collection plant, which now starts to malfunction and fall to pieces. As the two men run and leap for their lives, girders, catwalks, and towers melt and collapse into the lava, demonstrating the fragility of civilization confronted with nature's brute primal power. Lucas Cross cuts the delirious destruction of Coruscant of the Great Rotunda of the Galactic Senate with its thousand round balconies and cool tonalities of gray and black. This twirled rumination of industrial and political architecture is an epic romantic spectacle, like split parts of J.M.W. Turner's eyewitness painting of the catastrophic burning of the British House of Parliament in 1834. William's thunderous choral score, recorded with the London Sympathy Orchestra at Abbey Road, has the implacable charge of a black mass. The sound mix, overseen by Lucas, is unnerving. A trumpet, a tempest of roars, hisses, sputters, clangs, and splashes goes shockingly blank and silent when Anakin's arms and legs are severed midair. He falls heavily to the ground where he crawls like a serpent with demonic yellow eyes before he catches fire and is half incinerated. But all these horrors are transcended in the serene ending of Revenge of the Sith. The violent red river of primitive emotion is forgotten as the separated twins are delivered to their adoptive parents at peace against idyllic open landscapes of mountains and desert across the galaxy. The exquisite tenderness with which strong men handle babies here surely reflects Lucas's own experience as a single parent who retired for two years to raise the first of his three adopted children. "'Expand our universe,' Lucas commands his artists and technicians." He is a man of machines yet a lover of nature, his wily persona of genial blandness masking one of the most powerful and tenacious minds in contemporary culture. I read that and I was like, wow, I wish I could write that. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I think it's amazing like how she talked about that like that whole scene and how it relates to what's going on in the in world, but then also how it relates to like who George Lucas is. That last line that you just read about um, – what can you read it again? Yeah. Hold on. I just closed the book. I, I'm wishing we had read this line in our By George series because <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it's the perp- – like she summed it up in one sentence what we did in like six hours Sorry, yes. of podcast. <laughs> yeah. Literally. <laughs> um, says, Expand our universe, Lucas commands us to artists and technicians. He is a man of machines, yet a lover of nature. His wily persona of genial blandness, masking one of the most powerful and tenacious minds in contemporary culture.
1: That is just so, it sums it all up. And it's like, it's, I think it's the reason why so many find so much inspiration in Star Wars in general. Um, And I have to agree with her. I mean, I think it's such an aggressive, um, statement to say that you know george lucas is the greatest artist of our time um but i i mean i, I do have to agree and you can't argue with her when she describes things that way yeah you know? exactly
0: i think it's it's like it like you said it, it sums up everything perfectly with how um everything from like the creating skywalker ranch to the mortis gods and clone wars and rebels and you know even like what little pieces of the Lost 20 he had really kind of explored when he was making the prequels. Like it, it all comes back to that statement about how he has such a tenacious personality underneath the beard and the plaid. <laughs> and uh, yes. he, uh, he thinks a lot about history, and so do we. And I think it's thanks for letting me blabber on this episode for like so much. <laughs> um, it was great.
1: It was great. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I hope some of it made sense um and that anyone besides you and I enjoyed it. But uh <laughs> history is important and I'm glad that Star Wars both in universe and in our in our own world is demonstrating that.
1: I just realized something and we didn't mention the character of Afra at all um yes. throughout this entire episode and I think that that was I, Caitlin and I aren't as well read in the comics, but we do we have a, a conscious understanding of mm-hmm. Afra and her kind of parallelism to Indiana Jones as um, someone who's very interested in artifacts. And I think it's really, really cool. And it just shows that the fact that um, that comic sells so well in Marvel that people are really interested in this side of star Wars. And, um, again, I'm not really, I'm not caught up on Afra. I wish I, I wish I was because I think that she's an amazing character, but, um, she's just another example of star, star Wars, understanding and working with their, the, the, the history that lives within the canon.
0: Yeah, exactly. I'm so glad you brought her up because I, I haven't read any of Aphra yet. It's on my list. I'm, like, angry at myself that I haven't read it yet, but I just I just haven't, guys, okay? Um, but I'm glad you brought her up because you're right. It's like people are interested in the history of Star Wars in-universe, and she's such, like, a great um character to do that with. Um, I've, I've only ever heard great things about her, and I do kind of know what she does, but I haven't read her stories yet. um, Yeah,
1: we have a familiarity. You know, you understand.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Well, I think that's going to wrap up this episode. Again, thank you for letting me kind of uh, talk ad nauseum throughout this episode I hope some things made sense if not you know where to find me on twitter at Caitlin Plusher uh, to ask me any more if you'd like um, Charlotte is at clarity and our podcast is at sky talkers pod um, you can also find us anywhere you can get podcasts and if you'd like to leave us a review on any of those um, platforms be it iTunes or anywhere else you can leave reviews we would really appreciate it it helps other people find our show
1: Yes, it really does. And I would like to say a huge thank you to our amazing patrons, Amy, Joanna, Z, Terry, Cherie, Angela, Diana, Becca, Lynn, Katie, Rachel, Courtney, Brian, Susanna, Megan, Amy, Kelly, Jim, Suara, BJ, Hamsa, from a certain point of view, the Dorky Diva Show, Megan, Stuart, Kyle, Jennifer, Danny, Ross, Kels, Chastity, Elias, Sarah, Travis, Katie, Daniela, Alyssa, Rebecca, Andy, Delaney, Angela, Ally, Natalia, Daz, Serene, Shireen, Matt, Jordan, Molly, Chell, Aaron, Rebecca, Lauren, Tom, Edith, Adam, Derek, Connie, Robbie, Kirsty, Brandon, and Chuck. Thank you guys so much for supporting us. It means the absolute world.
0: Yes, thank you guys so much. And until next time, may the force be with you.
1: May the force be
0: with you.